This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was pre-recorded as part of a live continuing education webinar. On-demand CEUs are still available for this presentation through all CEUs. Register at allceus.com slash counselor toolbox. Counselor Toolbox podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, the world's largest e-counseling platform, providing accessible and affordable counseling services via messaging, live chat, phone, or video. To apply to be a counselor at BetterHelp with no overhead fees or cost, go to BetterHelp.com slash toolbox. You can also find a counselor by going to BetterHelp.com slash toolbox and clicking on Get Started in the upper right corner. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's continuing presentation of the Journey to Recovery series. Today we're going to be talking about the biopsychosocial aspects of emotions and how to communicate this information to clients so they understand what causes these feelings that are going on. We want to learn how to help clients understand, identify, and modify the physiological, psychological, and social causes of emotions so you know obviously we want to help them enhance the the things that trigger good emotions but mitigate anything that causes distress so there are some slides in here that are going to be more just for clinical background knowledge because most of our clients don't care about the research but the research is important for us to understand why it's important um, neurotransmitter balance is one of the things that causes emotions so we want to help clients understand that their physical body, their physical health, and their brain health can contribute to emotions. And there's a lot of things that they do that will alter their neurotransmitter balance. One of them is sleep and circadian rhythms. And the research has indicated that depressive disorders are associated with various neurobiological alterations like hyperactivity of the HPA axis, altered neuroplasticity, and altered circadian rhythms. Okay, so in English, what does that mean? That means people who have a HPA axis, which we're going to talk about in a little while, that is hyperactive or even hypoactive can experience depression. Um, and people who have altered circadian rhythms also often experience depression. And, you know, they don't know whether which causes which, whether depression causes the alteration in circadian rhythms or vice versa. Um, but they have shown that you know think about shift workers when they work shift work for a long time and they're not restabilizing their circadian rhythms a lot of times they start experiencing a lot more health problems and that sort of stuff 
Circadian rhythm disruption is reliably associated with various adverse mental health and well-being outcomes, including major depression and bipolar disorder. Okay. The prefrontal cortex, which is that area that's responsible for impulse control um, in, in part, is particularly susceptible to the effects of sleep loss. So let's think about this. If we've got a client who tends to emotionally dysregulate really quickly, you know, hence the definition of emotion, emotional dysregulation, we may want to look at whether that person is experiencing some sort of changes in their prefrontal cortex because of sleep loss or something else like substance use. But it is important to recognize that people tend to become more impulsive, more careless when they are sleep deprived. And a reduced quantity of sleep increases risk for major depression, which in turn increases risk for decreased sleep. So... Again, let's think about it. When somebody doesn't have enough sleep, they may develop major depressive disorder. When they have major depressive disorder, um, the uh, when they have major depressive disorder, a lot of times they don't have enough serotonin to make the melatonin to get good quality sleep. So it's important to recognize that when they're not getting good quality sleep, they sleep, but then they're not rested. And when they're not rested, then guess what? Um, they're having more difficulties. All righty. So those are things that we want to um, pay attention to in terms of knowing what goes behind the impact of sleep loss on circadian rhythms and how that impacts depression. Most clients that I've worked with really don't care about all this nitty-gritty, but it's important for us to understand, you know, why sleep is important. Um, and we can explain to them, you know, circadian rhythms on a, you know, very superficial level, and that's all most of them want. But if they want the deep dive, you know, there's all kinds of articles out there. So when I work with clients, you know, I talk about, I talk with them and I say, when you're sleep deprived, and I don't mean just like one night, I mean sleep deprived because you've been sick for a week and you know your sinuses have kept you up or you've got a new baby at the house or a new puppy or whatever it is when you're really sleep deprived for multiple days how does it affect your mood and we talk about that and then we talk about how their mood is and how their concentration is when they're well rested um and generally they can start identifying how sleep really does impact them to a greater or lesser extent. Some of us are more susceptible to sleep loss than others. Circadian rhythms are a little bit different. Circadian rhythms are when your body um, sleeps and eats and is awake. Circadian rhythms are largely set by light patterns. So if your circadian rhythms are out of whack, then it's not going to be secreting the sleep hormones at the right time and the wake hormones at the right time. Circadian rhythms are also involved in the secretion of cortisol. And cortisol gets a bad rap. I mean, it's our stress hormone. It does have its negative side. But a little bit of cortisol is necessary. A little bit of cortisol is what gets us out of bed in the morning. And if we're not getting out of bed in the morning, then probably indicates we're headed down towards some sort of clinical depression. So it's important that our circadian rhythms are set so our body knows when to sleep and our body knows when to secrete that cortisol to help us get out of bed. So what can people do about this? So we talk first with 
I talk first with clients about what are some things that you think impair your circadian rhythms that confuse your body about when you're supposed to be awake and when you're supposed to be asleep. <clears throat> and we talk um, a lot about different light levels, different settings that they're in, different activities, and even just switching their schedule back and forth. We start brainstorming different ways that people can start resetting their circadian rhythms. Now, we're getting into that period. I woke up this morning, and uh, my daughter goes out and lets the animals out at first light. Well, first light is obviously getting a lot later now. And I woke up this morning at the time that she normally goes out and lets, lets out the chickens, and it was still pitch black outside. Now, of course, she was still going down there because... 5.15, time to go down and let the chickens out. She's a little rigid. Um, but it's important to recognize the impact of daylight savings time and daylight changes on people's moods. Well, we can't make the sun stay up or make the sun go down at any particular time. But encouraging people to think about what can they do to sort of trick their body. Now, with the chickens, one of the things, if they don't have 16 hours of daylight, they won't lay. And, you know, the whole reason we have chickens is for eggs. So if they're not laying, that's kind of not ideal. So what do we do? We have a bright light in their coop that turns on at 5.15 every morning, and then it turns off 16 hours later. Um, so it's important to kind of keep that same thing going for humans. So when you wake up in the morning, you know, turn on the lights, wake yourself up. But then at nighttime, it's important to do the opposite and turn down the lights and not be sitting in a bright room at, you know, eight o'clock at night and doing all kinds of active things. Jobs and odd hours, uh, Laura points out. And I've worked with a lot of people who have who worked shift work. My husband was a um, law enforcement officer for almost 20 years, and he loved midnight shift. You know, that was when the excitement was, and that's when the brass was not there. So he enjoyed working that shift. What he didn't do, however, was maintain that schedule. So he would work two days on, and then he would have three days off. And during those three days off, he'd switch back to a, you know, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. schedule. And then when he'd go back to work, he'd be working at 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. schedule. And over time, you know, you can do that a couple of times, but over time, he would start to get this really green pallor. And he didn't know when he was supposed to be awake, when he was supposed to be asleep, when he was supposed to be eating. You know, it was like perpetual jet lag. Um, so it's important for clients who work odd hours or who work rotating shifts, even a slight change in shift going from you know, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. shift to the um, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. shift is a big jolt to your circadian rhythms. Um, so it's important to recognize that uh, clients will need to um, adjust and plan accordingly. And in early recovery, if they're, you know, working on depression or anxiety, it's going to be really important for them to try to stabilize their schedule as much as possible. So if they work the midnight shift and they get off at 8 a.m., well, then ideally they would go to bed, sleep six to eight hours, and then get up and hang out with the family. And yes, that means they're going to be up by themselves, you know, for a significant portion of the night. 
but it's much better for their mood, their health, and all that other stuff. Um, so those are some things we can talk with clients about, different ways they can balance their circadian rhythms. If they've got a new baby in the house, um, you know, babies don't sleep through the night. So if a person is particularly susceptible to sleep disruptions and, um, and, and well, if they're particularly susceptible to sleep disruptions, it's important to help them try to figure out what they can do. Like I've said many times before, I am very susceptible to sleep disruptions. So when our kids were little, my husband, because he was working midnight shift, would take that middle of the night feeding. And so I would get a solid four to six hours um, that I wouldn't have to be, you know, feeding the baby or whatever. And that helped a lot. If I didn't get that, I was pretty much zombified. And um, so the next thing that you can help people do is improve their sleep quality. And this is a fun activity to do with clients. Um, you can identify or ask them, what things do you do to improve your sleep quality? And a lot of times they'll look at you like, huh? If they've got a um, fitness tracker, they may be a little bit more aware of that now than maybe 10 years ago we were, the difference between light sleep and deep sleep. But what do you do to improve your sleep quality? And have people pay attention. I know... Um, if I'm out late on the nights that my kids have martial arts until 7.30 or 8, it takes me a lot longer to get to sleep. And then I wake up the next morning kind of feeling like I got hit by a truck. Um, but, yeah. and on the days that I'm able to get to bed by 8 or 8.30, I wake up the next morning and I feel more energized. So it just shows that even altering your schedule a couple of hours can be a big deal. We talk about sleep routines. You know, I ask clients, how do you help your kids get to sleep? Um, it's important to uh, continue to do those things with your kids or, and with yourself that you did with your kids. So paying attention to making sure that you're doing roughly the same three things every single night to cue your body in that, hey, it's time to start getting ready for bed. And then I start asking them, you know, what other things... Do you think disrupt your sleep or keep you from getting a good night's sleep? And people start throwing out all kinds of things, like having the dog on the bed, if it's too hot, if the fan's too noisy, um, if, you know, you just, this is the only time all day long, as Aaron points out, that you've had any quiet, any me time where you can just read a book undisturbed or something. It's tempting to stay up and do that because it's like, oh my gosh, finally, 10 minutes to myself. Uh, so we start talking about what things get in the way and how to start setting yourself up so you get good quality sleep. There was actually a study that came out today uh, that indicated that the sweet spot for sleep is between six and eight hours for adults. People who sleep less than six hours tend to have higher risk of all kinds of heart and blood pressure problems. And people who sleep more than eight hours of night with regularity also tend to have more health-related problems. So whether the sleep causes it or the health-related problems cause the excess sleep, you know, they didn't really expound upon that. You could you know, look at the chicken-egg dilemma there. But it is important to know that you need to get between six and eight hours of sleep. So what can the average person do to improve their sleep? Um, oversleeping, you know, depending on your temperament, 
uh, can have a huge effect or not much of an effect at all. I know if I'm not up by 5.30, I feel like I've slept half the day away and I'm just like grumpy as I'll get out. Um, and that's even on the weekends. You know, I like to get up early and get a jump start on the day and, you know, I'm kind of rigid. My daughter gets it honest. Uh, my son, on the other hand, on the weekends, if he sleeps until 9 or 9.30, he is just ecstatic because, you know, he's rested and he doesn't really care that much. When we start getting too much sleep, though, what happens? Our body starts going, well, when am I supposed to secrete that melatonin? You know, you seem to be staying in bed all, all the time. So, you know, when is the cortisol supposed to go out? When is the melatonin supposed to go out? What am I supposed to be doing here? Because you're not even syncing with the light levels anymore. So you know, the brain gets confused very easily. So we want to make very clear signals to it. Block out the white um, on, your, on your mobile devices, on your television. It's a little annoying, but you can turn down the blue colors on your television a lot. So when you're, if you're watching TV late at night, you can start you know, still secreting some of that melatonin. Um, that, that's really important to do. Another thing that people forget is that in order to go to sleep, they need to be cool. So, you know, not getting overly warm. You know, there are a lot of different things that clients can do, and I actually do an entire group on improving sleep's quality and balancing circadian rhythms because it is so important in people's recovery. Because if they're depressed... A lot of times they've been sleeping too much but not getting rested or you know there's a few people that I've worked with that have had insomnia but generally um, they're just they're feeling exhausted and fatigued and sluggish all the time and they just can't feel like they can get jump started so we talk about how to start doing that one of the things that first interventions that I use with those clients is to get up and get dressed same time every morning, whatever time they choose that's reasonable. Not everybody likes to get up at five. Um, they need to get up and get dressed and go sit by a bright light, preferably, you know, an outside light, you know, like a, the sunlight. But, you know, if it's still dark outside, turn on the bright lights in your dining room or in your breakfast room in order to start cueing your body that, hey, it's time to be awake. Now, the light boxes that they use in order to help set circadian rhythms um, are set at a very specific light temperature as well as a very specific brightness, which is almost impossible to get in overhead lights. So, you know, if you're thinking about light therapy, then you may want to have people look at light boxes, but it still helps to have daylight bulbs, and yeah, they're not nearly as flattering on the complexion as some of the soft white bulbs, but they do help a lot with broad spectrum um, color and, and helping you trick your brain into realizing it's time to be awake. At night, turn down the lights. That's when you turn on those soft white bulbs um, in order to teach your brain that it's time to um, start going to bed. Nutrition is another thing that can disrupt neurotransmitters. Nutrition provides the building blocks in order to make the neurotransmitters. Well, some people may be eating great, which is wonderful. Um, however, if they're not absorbing it because they've got celiac disease or, 
you know, something else going on, then they're still going to have some neurotransmitter imbalance. So we want to make sure that they're eating healthfully, and this is more between their doctor and them, but we want to have them work with their doctor to make sure they're eating healthfully and they're absorbing all the nutrients that they need. Another part of nutrition is blood sugar. When people's blood sugar gets too low, they may feel anxious. When their blood sugar gets too high, they may feel nervous or even fatigued. This is especially prominent in people with diabetes, but you can see it in people with hypoglycemia or just who aren't eating really well. So it's important to recognize the effects of blood sugar on our physiological responses. Because what are feelings? Feelings are words we assign to certain physiological states. If we are feeling, um, our, our heart rate is, is racing and we're breathing shallowly and, you know, we're sweating a little bit, we have that excitatory response going on, we're probably going to label it with one of those excitatory feelings, anger, anxiety, or exhilaration. Um, and those are what we call you know, the physiological state. So a lot of people, when they start having low blood sugar, will start getting shaky, and their heart rate may start beating a little bit faster, which is their body's way cortisol is being secreted in order to get more blood sugar into the system because their blood sugar is low. So that cortisol dump, which normally happens with anxiety, is now happening in response to low blood sugar. So people may unknowingly call it anxiety when it's actually low blood sugar. So it is important, again, to educate them about these facts so that they can make better health decisions. Hydration is another one. Uh, when we are dehydrated, our heart rate actually speeds up a little bit. And when we're dehydrated, we also feel more sluggish and lack of energy and foggy-headed, and a lot of those have difficulty concentrating. A lot of those characteristics that we ascribe to depression. Hydration is important. Hydration with caffeine is not hydration. That is, you know, kind of defeating its own purpose. So making sure that people are drinking non-caffeinated beverages um, throughout the day. Does it have to be water? Eh, ideally. But if not, you know, any uncaffeinated beverage that they can get in is probably going to be better than none. So nutritional interventions, again, we are not, that is not within our scope of practice, so they want to do it under medical supervision. But one thing you can do with your clients is just kind of brainstorm different ways that they can improve their nutrition, because most people have ideas already. For example, if they've been going out to eat at lunch and they've been getting a lot of you know fast food that's fried and all that kind of stuff maybe they can start getting um, I don't know what you call them anymore we called them TV dinners back back in the day but frozen frozen lunches that you can bring and heat up in the microwave you know is that ideal no is it much better than eating you know something that is super duper fried and high-end um, polyunsaturated or not um, hydrogenated fats yeah, so we want to look at some harm reduction here. What other strategies can they use to get more water? Carrying a water bottle around with them. You'll find, or most people find, that they drink more if they just happen to have that bottle in their hand. So that's an effective strategy. And we can spend some time brainstorming this in group. 
We want to make sure that they improve absorption, and that's obviously something they got to talk with their doctor about, and eat in a way that stabilizes their blood sugar. Again, that's something for them to talk with their doctor about. But if they notice, interesting fact, the brain is one of the biggest users of blood glucose. And you're like, oh, so that's when I, why when I sit in class all day long, I walk out of there feeling like completely drained or I get hungry like nobody's business. Yeah, that could be part of it. So if somebody is finding that um, they're having periods where they're cranky, you know, look and see, you know, when was the last time that person ate and keep a chart of their eating in correspondence with their activities and when they start to get hungry or cranky. And there may be a pattern there that indicates that they might need some sort of a um, appropriate snack. And again, that's for, for a nutritionist to help them with. But that is um, one thing that can help. PTSD and hypocortisolism. Now, we talked about hypercortisolism um, a little bit earlier, but hypocortisolism can also be super detrimental. So hypercortisolism is when you've got too much cortisol going through your system a lot of time. And yeah, hangry is a real thing. Um, and that's not good. You know, you don't want to have that much cortisol going through your system because cortisol has some effects. And I've got a fun activity for that in a minute. Uh, but hypocortisolism is an interesting phenomenon that occurs to people who've experienced either chronic stress or significant trauma when the hpa axis is activated for too long eventually the body says you know what you've been trying to fight this fight for so long and you're clearly not going to win so we're going to turn down the response so you know we're not responding to every single stimulus anymore we're going to conserve energy for things that are really worth getting fired up about now one of the caveats here getting fired up, secreting cortisol, getting excited. Well, excited can be good or bad. So if the body is holding on to those excitatory neurotransmitters, then it means the person's going to probably experience a lot more apathy because they're not getting upset about stuff, but they're also not getting happy about stuff. Their body's just holding on. The other caveat is they're holding on at this apathy level, but then when something does happen, the HPA axis just kind of opens the floodgates, and all of a sudden they become exceptionally emotionally aroused. So it's the you know, extremes, that emotional dysregulation that we've talked about some. And that is not uncommon in people with um, PTSD or histories of trauma. So we do want to be aware of that and help them understand how it makes sense. You know, the body is holding on for dear life. Then when it perceives there's a threat, it's like, oh, no. You know, I, I'm ready. I'm going to take this one. I'm not going to get victimized again. So it's recognizing those things. Um, Cushing's and Addison's disease are characterized by altered cortisol levels. Now, not everybody with hypocortisolism according to the research um, on PTSD and stuff, not everybody with hypocortisolism is going to fall in the brackets where they actually get diagnosed with Cushing's or, or Addison's disease. Um, but both people, whether they've got way too much or not enough um, cortisol, can exhibit high rates of depression. And they've also found that 
people with these diseases or with abnormal levels of cortisol often find significant mood relief when their cortisol levels are normalized. And what did we talk about earlier affects cortisol levels besides trauma? Sleep and circadian rhythms. So again, the body is really cool, but it's also really intertwined, and we need to make sure that the person's able to actually feel happy and is able to stabilize the, the uh, neurotransmitters. I put down here organic dysregulation because some people are just born more emotionally reactive than others. We call, we've talked about um, fussy babies, if you will, and babies who are more temperamental and more demanding. And sometimes that can be because they are more organically prone to dysregulation. Those children from jump need to start learning how to deal with that. So dealing with hypocortisolism and organic emotional dysregulation, encourage clients to identify stress and stress stimuli that can increase cortisol levels. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is when you exercise, you release cortisol. Cortisol tells your body to secrete blood glucose so you can prepare for the fight or flee. When you're exercising, you're simulating fight or flee. So when people are, when their cortisol levels are too low, then they might have difficulty getting the energy to exercise. Illness and recovery from surgery also causes the secretion of cortisol. Why is this? Because your body is under stress. Cortisol prepares you for fight or flight. And when you are under stress because you're sleep deprived, you're sick, you are exercising, or you are getting, getting over surgery or something, your body goes, hey, you're kind of vulnerable right now. So I need to prepare us for protection. I need to keep you on alert, make you a little bit more hypervigilant so that you can protect yourself. It makes sense. It kind of sucks when you're trying to get good sleep, but it makes sense. So we do want to have people uh, pay attention to that. Again, addressing sleep deprivation, have them address pain. When we're in pain, our cortisol levels go up. And I participated in a study when I was in college. Um, they measured cortisol levels, you know, at baseline. And then we put our hands in ice baths. And after 20 minutes of sheer agony, they measured our cortisol levels again. And guess what? They were up. Um, so people who are in pain can have dysregulated cortisol, which, again, not only indicates that there's pain, but it will prevent them from getting quality sleep. Um, and sudden discontinuation of glutocorticoids after prolonged glutocorticoid therapy. If somebody's been taking prednisone or something for a long time for some sort of illness, uh, they may need to taper from it um, because that can also cause cortisol dysregulation. Another thing people can do in order to help stabilize their um, cortisol levels is to protect, protect, is to practice mindfulness. Um, I talk about mindfulness meals with my clients at first because most people are willing to do something at three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They're like, okay, I can handle that. There's another add-on once you get used to doing mindfulness meals, if you have a fitness monitor, yeah, I'm clearly addicted to mine, um, every so often it yells at you to move. 
And if you use that reminder to also check in with yourself and do a mindfulness activity, then you're going to be being mindful like once an hour or something. Um, the key is not to tune it out like I do mine. But <laughs> you want to make sure that clients are checking in. And I don't mean just doing random mindfulness activities. I mean mindfulness in terms of checking in with themselves and going, how do I feel right now? What do I need emotionally, mentally, physically, socially, and environmentally? So that's when they check around and they go, you know what? I didn't really pay attention to it before, but that noise that, that I'm hearing from, you know, outside my window is really bothering me. Maybe I need to shut the window and that might give me that relief. Um, so making, making sure they check in with themselves to identify any annoyances that might be increasing their stress and their cortisol. Another thing to help clients do is to, uh, to encourage them to tame their monkey mind. And this is another place that mindfulness comes in. When people are mindful, then they're focused on the present moment. They're not worrying about something that hasn't happened yet or angry or resentful or stewing about something in the past or embarrassed or any dysphoric emotion. They're in the moment. So they're not exerting all that feeling. You know, think about a time where you're just like driving along and all of a sudden something reminds you of an unpleasant memory or something that you've got to do next week that you really don't want to do. And you are perfectly happy. Now, all of a sudden, you've got this cortisol coursing through your body. That's not so helpful. So the more we can encourage people to tame their monkey mind and be mindful, the better or easier it's going to be for them to balance and not spontaneously trigger their cortisol levels. Sensory grounding um, can be good to help people get back into the moment and to tame that monkey mind, focusing on something that is right here, right now, and bringing them back in, um, and addressing trauma. And somebody else um, had mentioned back here um, a, a book by um, Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps Score. And yes, that is a fabulous, fabulous book. Also, Seeking Safety is another fabulous resource for people with trauma. Neurotransmitter balance is also impacted by inflammatory conditions, including autoimmune conditions like Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. A lot of inflammatory conditions or inflammation in the body is associated with fatigue, anhedonia, low mood, social isolation, and irritability. So when people are inflamed for some reason or another, you know, they can start, it can start impacting their mood. Part of this is because inflammation activates IDO, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it. IDO is an enzyme which converts tryptophan, the amino acid that's broken down to make serotonin. It converts tryptophan into kynurenine, which competes for tryptophan with the serotonin pathway and produces neurotoxic byproducts. So you've got tryptophan here, and ideally it's being broken down to make serotonin and then melatonin and all those happy things and help with pain regulation and all of that stuff. But when somebody has inflammation going on, that tryptophan gets divided. So then they have less of it to go in the serotonin pathway, which leads to serotonin deficits. Uh, so that can be a problem. Um, Childhood trauma, they found, which is why the ACEs High um, study is so important. Childhood trauma permanently upregulates 
pro-inflammatory molecules. So they've found that people who have a history of trauma tend to have more um, inflammation throughout their body and activation of IDO, which can mean they may have, people with childhood trauma may have lower levels of serotonin biologically because their brain made that adjustment way back then. Okay, the HPA axis. This is one of my favorite things in the world. It's our central stress response system. The hypothalamus releases corticotropin releasing factor, or CRF. The pituitary gland triggers the release of ACTH. The adrenal glands, um, when the ACTH hits there, um, causes the adrenal glands to release the stress hormones, particularly cortisol and adrenaline. So you've got excitation. Now, we don't know at this point whether the excitation is excitement and exhilaration or fear or rage, but we know we're, we're ramped up now. The adrenals control chemical reactions over a large part of the body, including the fight-or-flight response, and produce even more ho hormones than the pituitary gland. Steroid hormones like cortisol um, increase the availability of glucose, blood sugar, and fat which is a much more dense source of um, energy. It all, the adrenal glands also produce sex hormones like DHEA and estrogen and stress hormones like adrenaline. So the adrenals are really important. So, you know, we want to take care of them. Once the perceived threat passes in a functional system, cortisol levels return to normal. Okay. But what if the threat never passes? What about for people who are living in environments that are unstable, that are violent, that are dangerous, that are scary? Then that cortisol level forever stays up. The amygdala and hippocampus are intertwined with the stress, stress response. The amygdala modulates anger and fear and fight or flight. That is our real primitive aspect of our brain that says, hey, protect yourself. The hippocampus helps to develop and store memories. So the hippocampus takes the information it gets and it stores it as a, that was dangerous or, you know, maybe that was okay. The brain of a child or adolescent is particularly vulnerable because of its high state of plasticity. Bad things are learned and emotional upset prevents learning new positive things to counterbalance it. When cortisol levels are high, when the HPA axis is activated, a lot of times learning is, you know, higher order cognition is not what the brain is concerned with right now. It's concerned with fight or flee. It's concerned with protection. When there's a chronic threat to safety or a constant underlay of anxiety for some reason, people's brains, for, brains forge synaptic, synaptic connections from experience and prune away connections that are not utilized. So if somebody is constantly seeing the negative in things, constantly seeing the threats, guess what their brain's going to really remember? What pathways are they going to do? Think about on a snowy day, you know, which roads do the snowplows go out and clear? The ones that are most traveled. So the roads that are cleared in somebody's brain are going to be the ones that are most traveled. People who feel a lack of control over their environment are particularly vulnerable to excessive stimulation of the HPA response. 
may, again, it makes sense. If you feel like you're not in control of your environment, if you're not safe in your environment, then what is that? That means you are constantly under threat. If you're constantly under threat, then that threat response system is going to be active. This applies to people like uh, uh, abused and neglected children, abused and neglected adults, and even other people, children and adults, with anxiety or depressive disorders. The synaptic connections that form the foundation, um, people's schema themselves and the world become skewed towards the traumatic event. So if this trauma was, you know, really potent, it can form some really strong synaptic connections just with one event. And while the person is in that state or, you know, in a perceived state of, of threat, then again, they're going to start focusing on survival and protection. Interestingly, we have something called the negativity bias. And they found that the way we're hard, hardwired because of our amygdala and, and other things, the golden ratio, so to speak, in order to balance out and undo the negativity bias isn't one-to-one. So one bad experience doesn't balance out with one good experience. It's one to five. One bad experience balances out after five good experiences. So this is a technique we can use with clients. When they have a bad day, when they have a bad experience, then they need to identify five things that are helpful or going well for them or that they have control over. But that one to five ratio is really important. The hypervigilant state activated by the HPA response disrupts the ability to focus and learn. And yes, um, I've been watching this chat go through as I've been talking. And I do think some social anxiety, anxiety because of bullying, as well as anxiety from a lot of other pressures and just lack of coping abilities leads to children to have a lot of anxiety when they're at school, which disrupts their ability to focus and learn. And if they can't learn, then that just compounds the anxiety. There's lots of research out there that has shown that as kids do more poorly in school, their anxiety and depression also goes up. The HPA axis, when it's activated, impairs the ability to form new memories and recall information due to physiologic changes to the hippocampus. So if they are under stress, if they are under threat, then... Again, their body is not worried about, you know, filing information right now. It's worried about battening down the hatches. So one activity I do with people, which can be kind of fun, is I have red and yellow t-shirts. Um, and you can get really cheap ones or you can get smocks or whatever. Um, but I have them dress up as different chemicals in the brain. And it sounds kind of hokey to do, but it drives home a point. So we start with the brain, and I'm the brain. <laughs> just because. And I tell the body to release cortisol and adrenaline. So two people dress in red shirts, cortisol and adrenaline, because those are the excitatory things that are going on when a stress response happens. Um, and then I have other people that are dressed in yellow shirts. Yellow for the sex hormones. Those are the happy chemicals. The sex hormones, um, serotonin, melatonin, um, and sleep. So I have those out there, you know, melatonin is for sleep. So the HPA axis is activated. And then I release glucose and I release um, cortisol and adrenaline. So we have three red shirts out there right now. Well, when the red shirts go into the circle, then what comes out? You know, 
we did have all those other things in the circle. So the yellow shirts have to start coming out. Serotonin has to come out. Melatonin has to come out. Um, sleep, if we've got sleep in there, also has to come out. So all of a sudden, you're seeing that you've got a lot of red in the circle, and all the yellow stuff is standing by. Well, when all the yellow stuff is standing by, when you don't have any happy in there, what happens? More stress. So we add more cortisol to the mix. So I have somebody else put on a red shirt. And it very quickly becomes obvious how having too much cortisol and too much adrenaline um, can have negative impacts on, on people's overall health and happiness. Okay, so let's talk about some basic things. Hyper or hypothyroid can also cause mood, mood symptoms. Hyperthyroid is more associated with anxiety, anger, irritability, hypothyroid with depression. Medications, um, hormones, such as, you know, people are taking um, uh, testosterone shots now, but also any horm female hormones, and that can include birth control, definitely has a significant effect on mood. Other things that you might not think of, though, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and statins, things that are used for heart heart disorders, heart rhythm disorders, and blood pressure can cause symptoms of depression. Opioids are depressants by nature, so they can lead to depressive symptoms. They can also have an impact because of their dopamine-releasing properties and other things. Some people, when they take opioids, actually feel an anti-anxiety response from it, so just kind of be aware. Stimulants such as decongestants and ADHD medications, can cause um, feelings of agitation, anxiety. Antidepressants, you wouldn't think this would be on here. Well, except for as a good thing. Antidepressants can help you feel less depressed in some people. But in other people, especially people with bipolar disorder, antidepressants can trigger a manic episode. And in people who have generalized anxiety disorder, some antidepressants, rev the system up a little bit and can actually make them feel more anxious. Anti-anxiety med medications like benzodiazepines, Xanax, Valium, you know, those sorts of things. When people take them, they may have that initial ah moment where they're not feeling anxious, but a lot of your short-acting benzodiazepines, when that benzo starts to wear off, the body doesn't secrete enough GABA on its own to counterbalance it, so they have a rebound anxiety effect. Um, steroids can trigger anxiety or mania, and herbs, including Yoimbi, 5-HTP, St. John's Wort, Sammy, and Valerian, can trigger mood episodes and agitation, anxiety, and even manic episodes in people with bipolar disorders. Psychological aspects of mood. So, you know, with the physiological aspects, a lot of it we can't intervene with, but it's really important to educate clients so they know why it's important, no matter how much they hate the doctor, why it's important to get blood work done, why it's important to take get good, good sleep, to monitor their circadian rhythms, and to eat a moderately healthy diet. You know, not crazy, just, you know, have some colors in there. Um, so co cognitive impacts on emotions. Well, emotion is arousal plus cognition. One of the first things uh, we talk about when we get to this slide is, you know, how do you know when you're angry? 
And what I want clients to eventually get to is the fact that emotions have a physiological response, a behavioral response, and an emotional response. So we want to identify, you know, what does, how does anger and anxiety and exhilaration, how do these all differ? Because they're all excitatory feelings. So it's arousal plus cognition. Another cognition or cognitive aspect that can uh, impact people's moods is when they're interpreting something based on outdated information. You know how you're computer reboots periodically and updates are added and applied so it knows how to handle new information that's coming in. What we need to encourage clients from a, if you want to use a psychodynamic perspective, to look back at some of the things that have impacted their life and impact, are currently impacting their life and identify whether those are really still issues. You know, are you still unsafe? Are you still in a position where you have to feel or act this way? We need to override the amygdala, and cognitions can do this, but we need to get them to communicate, because generally that amygdala just kind of takes off, um, especially if people have trauma in the, that, are in, that is in the amygdala that hasn't been dealt with yet, where they haven't come to some resolution, they don't have any sense of security or safety. So the amygdala is holding on to that going, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm holding on to this for memory. Well, that keeps it from checking with the hippocampus to figure out what else is going on. So we do need to help people work through their trauma, to address the negativity bias, to use techniques like radical acceptance and dialectics to address situations. Because with every bad situation, there is generally some balance to it. Um, and again, presenting... The concept of dialectics has to be done very carefully with clients because we don't want to invalidate their feelings by saying, well, yeah, that really sucks, but let's look at the silver lining. Um, that's invalidating. But we do want to help people try to, you know, restructure their cognition so it's not totally negative all the time. Um, mindfulness and serenity can also help override the amygdala. Getting people back into the moment, those grounding exercises, can help people deal with things when they're feeling overly stimulated. And serenity is that, get, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can. Helping clients identify what they do have control over and what they don't. Attributional style is another thing that can affect mood. You know, if you see everything as being your fault or as being incumbent upon you, how do you feel as opposed to if you see some things being in your control and your responsibility, but not everything, and recognizing that there are multiple factors in situations. Global versus specific is another attributional style that can affect cognitions. If you see somebody and or something and you have a bad reaction to it, um, maybe you have a bad reaction to spicy food. You know, let's just pick something kind of blasé. Well, if you overgeneralize, if you say all spicy food is going to give me a bad reaction so I can never eat spicy food again, well, that's very global. You know, maybe it was the cayenne pepper in this 
particular spicy food, but black pepper doesn't bother you. So, you know, helping people be more specific instead of glo making global generalizations and helping them see what they can change and what's stable. If they think that their life sucks, their life's always going to suck and there's nothing they can do about it, that's pretty darn stable. If they see parts of their life as changeable, then they may have a more optimistic viewpoint. Attributional style. Uh, some people who are experiencing a high level of arousal have difficulty accurately determining which emotion they're experiencing. High level of arousal. Again, I could be scared. I could be exhilarated. I'm not really sure. Like the one time I rode the roller coaster. We're going down that thing at like a bazillion miles an hour. I wasn't sure if I was exhilarated or if I thought I was going to die, but I didn't want to feel that feeling again. Ask clients to consider a time when their behaviors or judgments were based more on their feelings than on their thoughts and whether the outcomes were positive or negative. Um, the perfect example or the easiest example that a lot of people have experienced is um, getting on an airplane. You know, if you're making judgments or you're doing things because out of a feeling, because you're fearful, more than based on actual facts. Another thing we can ask them is if they've ever misattributed emotion. You know, they were angry and they thought they were angry about X, when in reality they were still angry about Y. Um, and, and we see this a lot with people. They've had a bad day at work and they're just, oh, they're angry. They're in a bad mood. They come home and they've been stuffing that anger because it's not appropriate to vent at work. And they get home and they take it out on their family. And so that's misattributing that emotion. The anger is getting misplaced. And socially, attachment theory describes a biological system with a survival function that's activated under pressure, separation, and danger. An activated attachment system elicits attachment behavior in children, which in turn leads to caregiving by adults. You know, the old Bowlby experiments. If caregivers primarily act sensitively with responsive avail availability, the child will most securely attach. And securely attached individuals have high flexibility in social interactions. If a person is securely attached, if they believe that they can trust themselves and the world around them to help them, then they're going to have less anxiety and less helplessness and hopelessness, i.e. depression. When attachment signals are not adequately answered by their caregivers, attachment becomes more insecure, avoidant, or just ambivalent, which again leads to high levels of cortisol because they're constantly stressed because they don't feel like they're safe. Low self-esteem contributes to um, mood problems, and self-esteem is our relationship with ourselves. If they don't feel good about themselves, they may feel hopeless, helpless, unlovable, which all of those things can contribute to depression or anxiety. Social support or lack thereof can contribute to um, people's moods. But also, if you're in an environment, and this kind of goes with environmental energy, if you're in an environment where everybody's negative and grouchy and unpleasant, how does that end up affecting you? And even if you've got good emotional boundaries, if you are immersed in that for hours, it's hard not to have some of it rub off on you or get irritated that everybody's negative and grouchy, which, you know, essentially rubbed off on you. 
so pay encourage clients to pay attention to their posture and facial expressions and the environmental energy my daughter says and forgive the language but my daughter says i've got a resting bitch face <laughs> and it's true i just the way my face is formed when i'm just sitting there um playing on my phone or whatever ambivalent it kind of looks like i'm scowling and it's not because i'm ha unhappy it's just i'm resting um so paying attention to facial expressions and interpreting them correctly is really important and you know, think about the activity we used to do in uh, college have people walk around for 10 minutes with their head down shuffling their feet shoulders slumped not looking at anybody looking at the floor and then ask them how they feel and then have them walk around with their head held high smiling at people looking around and ask them how they feel um, and obviously it's a little bit artificial but it does give people a sense of how their personal posture can even affect their emotional response Facebook did an experiment where they tried to see if they could manipulate your mood based on what they showed you and so some people they would show negative stressful things and I'm not sure exactly what metrics they used but they were definitely filtering what they let you see to see if it impacted your mood and they found out that it did um, but yeah there was no IRB on that anyhow the body mind and environment are all all contribute to our mood how we feel how we interpret things and how how safe the environment is and what triggers there are in our environment whether they're positive triggers or or unpleasant triggers each of these areas need to be explored and addressed to improve clients chances for optimal recovery from any sort of issue that they're dealing with alrighty right on the bell is there are there any questions I got behind on a couple of these posts here um, and yes Laura points out that dialectics can be you know you had a bad experience you were abused you you experienced trauma but you coped you survived you are here and you're now safe and those <clears throat> that's a perfect example of using dialectics sometimes clients aren't ready to go there yet um, so I, I try to you know ease into that as we write our next chapter so to speak um, it is helpful to have um, provide resources for significant others in the middle uh, when when their loved one is in the middle of an episode um, provide resources for them to know what to do to help their significant other so they can be effective social supports and that person can feel supported and securely attached an attachment although it can be addressed and it can be modified as Jerry points out um, or I'm sorry Aaron point out, point, points out it is a very very slow process because a lot of times the attachment wounds were caused by those primary caregivers that were programmed to believe are the ones that are supposed to be there for us so I'm not real familiar with relational image um, and it's defined as what we believe or experience about ourselves and the world then we try to match what we believe with our interpretations is what I'm reading um, that's a really fascinating concept that I'll definitely be looking into more thank you for pointing that one out well I really appreciated all the discussion today I need to go back and look more over this um, 
I will do some research on the link between anxiety and difficulty or inability to learn, and I'll have that for you on Thursday. Copy that right now. And one of the challenges that I've experienced is a lot of docs, if you don't fall in that, um, those clear boundaries for either Addison's or Cushing's disorder, they're not willing to consider any sort of cortisol abnormality. Um, they're, they're very clear that those are the only two real cortisol issues. So yes, it can be really challenging and dismissing to clients when they know something's wrong, but the physician is just unwilling to consider anything outside of really hardcore guidelines. Aaron point also pointed out at a, a little while ago that, you know, a lot of kids are under stress and they're already anxious and then they're given ADHD medication, which is a stimulant on top of that, which just ramps up the cortisol potentially even more. Alrighty, everybody, thank you for being here. And again, thank you for such an amazing discussion. I will look up that link between learning and anxiety, and I will see you on Thursday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.